It's certainly a great blessing to be with you. Counted a great privilege and uh, an exciting opportunity as always. And uh, you know, many times I, I have certain emotions that go along with certain uh, times where I am to speak, and I really just have been excited and have been looking forward to being with you once again here at Bethlehem. Um, and I'd like you to turn with me to First Corinthians, the first chapter. As you're turning there, I'd say it's a such a great opportunity to observe another baptism. There's no greater indication and illustration to us of the grace of the Lord when a saint is laid beneath the water, beneath the liquid grave, and is raised again to symbolize the death, resurrection, and burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, that has nothing to do with the work that he accomplished on the cross, but it does bring to mind, once again, his grace and having delivered us from the bondage of sin and raised us again in new life in Jesus Christ. So I'm certainly thankful for that this morning. That was a great encouragement. As we're thinking about the grace of God, as we're thinking about the message of grace that the gospel brings to us, we need to keep a few, thing, a few things in mind about it, how it might be received by other people who are not of the same faith. And Paul deals with that in the context of the Corinthian church. The first and second Corinthians are, of course, written to the Corinthian church. And many of the things that he wrote were directly applicable to the situation of this church. Because Corinth was a city that was given to idolatry. It was a city that was just wholly dedicated to the pursuit of idols. And so Paul has to deal with many of those pitfalls for the people in the church. And one way that he does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is he addresses many of the fears that would have afflicted the Corinthian church because so few other people had received the message that Paul came to preach. You know, Paul engages with some of the Greeks that would have been present at this time in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17. He goes to one of the major political and philosophical infrastructures of the time and he begins to preach the message of Christ. He begins to preach the very things that we read about in his epistles to these various cities. And he receives a lot of different responses. Some of the uh, Jew, uh, um, Jewish that people that were there, they did not receive the message well. It was in complete opposition to what he had to say. The Greeks said, the Greek philosophers, as he stood there and debated with them, they said, we never heard anything quite like this. Please tell us a little bit more. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And it ended up that he didn't have very many people follow after the message of Christ. He did have some that went after him because of the message that he delivered, the message of grace, the gospel that he taught. But overall, he's having to address a relatively small group of people living in the midst of a pagan city. And so he does so in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter. Let's begin in the 17th verse. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. 
It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So Paul is addressing the Corinthian church and he says, first of all, remember that I don't want you, any of you playing preacher favorites when you're talking about who may have baptized you and who preached the gospel to you in the first place. And he tells them, he says, for was, did I die for you on the cross? Did any of these other preachers die for you on the cross? Did any of these other men who may have preached the gospel and the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, did any of them die for you on the cross? He says, no, Christ did. And for that reason, the only person we ought to glory in is Christ himself. If a man is blessed to preach the gospel in the spirit of God, the glory in that goes to the Lord Jesus Christ. If someone is blessed to be baptized, the glory goes to the Lord. If someone is blessed to continue in faithfulness and discipleship, the glory goes to the Lord. And Paul says, the Lord wanted to teach this to me and teach this to you to such a great extent that he calls me a great rhetorician and a great learned man not to come to you in words of wisdom, but to come to you in all meekness and humility, placing my ability to preach and my, or my lack of ability to preach according to the Lord. See, Paul is a very learned man. I'm sure he was a very powerful speaker. They didn't have Google. They didn't have Microsoft Word or Google Documents to record their, lect- their lectures or their thoughts or anything like that. These men were, a lot of these men were great intellectual minds. They were learned. They had spent years learning the scriptures. They had spent years sometimes even learning how to copy and record the law of God. Paul is at the top of his class. And I'm sure there were many times that he stood in front of congregations of learned men and he spit spit fire and philosophy and the law in a very eloquent way. But he says, I didn't come to you in that same way when I came preaching the gospel. Because I didn't want you to accredit me with this marvelous message that I'm bringing to you. I wanted you to give the glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. So he said, I I didn't want to come to you with so much logic and so much reason and so much persuasion coming forth from my mouth that you didn't understand that your understanding of the gospel is contingent upon the work of God. Our understanding through faith of the gospel, the glory in that is to be given to God. Because if our hearts were not enlightened, if we had not been delivered from sin, we would not have the capability to receive and truly understand the gospel. Paul goes on throughout the book of Corinthians and he clarifies this once again, just one chapter over in chapter 2 and in verse 14. He says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So Paul's saying, remember, if you understand the gospel, if you believe the gospel, if you have the ability to walk in discipleship, the glory in that goes to God because He has given you the ability to understand, and He has given you the ability to be able to walk after Him in faith. 
Those who haven't been saved by the sovereign power of His grace will not truly understand, would not truly understand the message that Paul brought to the Corinthian church. It was foolishness unto them. That's a very, very strong word, but we read it twice. Paul says, to the natural man, the things of God are simply foolishness. And he goes on to say in verse 19, for it is written. Or when you see that phrase, for it is written, that means it's an Old Testament prophecy. If you have a cross-reference Bible, go look at those cross-references and see where it takes you. It'll take you to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms, all these other Old Testament passages that tell us the same thing that this verse does. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Because see... We as people who have access to great amounts of education, we have very uh, equal amounts of access to different kinds of education. We have a public educationary system. We have all these different universities. You can go and you can get your undergrad. You can get your master's. You can get your PhD. You can get your doctorate in all these various different fields. You can write a thesis to show to the world that you specialize in this one individual field. And you have a niche that no one else does. You understand things that no one else does. But in the midst of that, we have to remember that intellectual knowledge does not give us spiritual insight. So when we read the Scriptures, someone may be very highly educated according to the world, but God has chosen not to reveal those things through intellectual knowledge or education, but through the enlightening power of His Holy Spirit. So someone may not completely understand Scripture. They may understand it from a rational perspective or from a logical perspective, but to have a true and deep belief and understanding of the Scriptures, the Lord has to have brought them from death unto life. He has to have saved them. And Paul says, he asks these series of questions. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Remember, Paul is all of these things. Paul is the worldly wise man. He is a man who has stood in the midst of the intellectual giants of his time. And he has spoken to them in all these various languages. He has compared the writings of all these ancient philosophers. And he says, but what does that matter? When a true understanding of Scripture comes from God, he says, where is the scribe? Where is the man who has been taught to copy these ancient manuscripts? Where is the man who has been taught to take the dried skin of an animal and copy the law into it? Who is the man that has been taught to take these ancient sheets of paper and copy the Scriptures and hand them down generation to generation? How does that matter when the preservation of the Word of God is really in the hands of the Lord? Where is the disputer of this world? Where is the great political debater? Where is the man who could stand up with another man and can debate principles of politics or uh, social principles or principles of economics or principles of philosophy? Where is this man? He is nothing compared to the wisdom that we are able to gain through the revelation of God. For after that, in verse 21, we read, For after that, in the wisdom of God, The world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
So when, when, God, when God, not when God understood, because of the fact that God understood that men could not begin to understand Him through worldly wisdom, He chose to reveal, the, he chose to reveal a knowledge of Himself through preaching. Because see, when we look at the various uh, aspects of the Christian faith, some of those simply do not make rational sense to a lot of people. That is nothing to be ashamed of. That is nothing that we should not grapple with. Because God has given every born-again child of God a tool to understand the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ, the works that He did. He has given us the ability to understand and concretely believe those things. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, He says, an, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. You know, the, an evil, the evil and adulterous generation of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees sought a sign from the Lord Jesus Christ so that they could try to rationally understand what they said. They said, we don't believe you. Show us a sign so that we can begin to understand what you're teaching. And Jesus says they won't receive a sign except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now, who was Jonah the prophet? He was a man who was swallowed by a well, and three days and three nights later, after being in the stomach of that well, he was vomited up upon the earth. And he says, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Do you want a sign? We have a sign in the resurrection. We have a sign that we can refer back to and begin to understand what Christ did for us. Christ says, that's the sign you'll receive. You'll receive the sign of the empty tomb. You'll receive the sign of the people who observed the Lord Jesus Christ walking upon the earth after He was resurrected. He said, people may look at that sign and they may say, well, somebody just took his body away. Somebody just went and hid his body. Somebody took it out of that tomb and they went and buried it elsewhere. It's just a deception. But no, Christ says, look at this. And this is the sign that you will receive. Just as Jonah was in the belly of that well three days and three nights, the Lord will be in that grave for three days and three nights. And then he will rise again and he will walk upon the earth before ascending to glory in the presence of the Father. Well, the Jews, in verse 22, require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. The Jews wanted a sign. They wanted confirmation to them. You know, but nothing would have satisfied them. The Lord said, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you my resurrection. I'll give you my death. I'll give you my burial. And then you're going to see an empty tomb. And that's the sign that I'm giving you. But yet they didn't believe Him. The Greeks wanted wisdom. The Greeks wanted wisdom in the sense that it lined up with the things they already believed. And that's something that we often seek. We want wisdom. When we read Scripture, we don't want it to contradict any preconceived notions that we already have in our mind. We don't want to, say, we don't want to hear anything that may step on our toes. And so the Greeks were like this. They challenged Paul and they asked Paul for wisdom, but yet they didn't really want to hear the full import of his message. And so because of this, because of man's lack of, natural lack of ability, because of their sin, to truly understand who God is and what He's done for His children, 
God chose to save people through the foolishness of preaching. So when we look at this, when we look at the sacrifice of Christ, we look at the work of Christ, and then we look at preaching, we have to understand that there are a lot of problems and there are a lot of bad things that happen when we try to say that the gospel and the preaching of the gospel is always connected to salvation. When we say that someone has to be saved by the preaching of the gospel, bad things begin to happen. Number one, Satan ends up having the final say. There ends up being more people in hell than there are in heaven. Because out of the vast majority of all the people that have lived over the face of the earth, a lot of them were not able to hear the gospel message as we have it today. But we're told that the number of people in heaven in Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7, and John chapter 14 in my Father's house, there are many mansions that the number of people in heaven will be innumerable. There will be a great host there. The reason for that is no matter how great that host is, that host will never be sufficient to give God the glory He deserves. It doesn't matter if that host stands there for millions and trillions of years for all of eternity and continues to sing the praise of God will have never fully acknowledged His majesty. And so when we read that the hosts of heaven are to be innumerable, we have to understand that no, it's not the preaching of the gospel or the efforts of man that eternally saves us. No, it's the work of Christ. So what can we conclude? That in this evil and adulterous generation that the Corinthian church was in, the preaching of the gospel delivered them from something else other than eternal hell. They were delivered from many of the various diseases that afflicted that city because of their disgusting alternative lifestyles. They were delivered from ignorance. They were delivered from many of these currents of the world and philosophy and these mixed up and messed up theologies that swept through that city. And they were delivered into finding peace and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ as they walked in newness of life. And Paul says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. He says, he's saying, unless you think that the preaching of the gospel is what saves you, remember, we're not preaching something that does save you, but we're preaching about what already has saved you. We're preaching about Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. The message of Christ crucified was confusing to the Jews. They wanted a sign. They said, give us a sign. We want to understand who you are. We don't want to understand your message through faith. We want to understand it upon sight. We want to see it. We want to fully understand it. We want to have it on videotape, if you will. And the Greeks thought this message was foolish. They said it doesn't make sense to us. Don't give us that. It doesn't line up with what we want to hear. It doesn't line up with our preconceived notions about philosophy and who God is and how He interacts with mankind. But Paul says, regardless of what other people think about this message, unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, 
and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's a bold statement, is it not? We don't like to think that God, there's foolishness in God, or there's weakness in God. I'll say this, if there is any weakness in God, it would certainly be, if there is any weakness that we could perceive as men in God, it would be as people stand up and try to proclaim the gospel. Because they're men. They're fallible. They're people. They often forget. Their mind wanders. They can't deliver the full power of God as they ought to. But he's saying regardless, you may see men trying to deliver the gospel and they may not deliver it in power with persuading words of men, but that supposed weakness is still stronger than any message the world has to give you. That supposed message of the grace and love of Jesus Christ delivered through the fallible and decaying lips of men is stronger than any other message you'll ever hear. The message of grace can save you and deliver you from more impediments and pitfalls in this life than any other message that will ever be taught. It is more of a comfort than anything else you will ever find in this world. It is more of assurance to the sad and dejected heart of the child of God than anything else that can ever be offered you. And the Word of Christ that we read and that we often hear preached, it is the way that we try to begin to understand who God is. It's our connection to the divine. It allows us to leave just the decaying and fallible essence of this world and begin to ascend to understand some of the, the eternal nature and the true grace and love of Jesus Christ. We may be able to say, well, there has to be a creator for the world. There's only a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a chance that these molecules could align themselves in this way, that the world could be founded upon chance. But we can't explain the love of God by logic. Paul says, maybe for a righteous man, someone will die. Maybe for a good man, some, someone even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That defies all logic and rational understanding. That Christ, the holy, perfect Son of God, would come down and walk upon this earth and know he didn't die for righteous people. He didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. That defies all rationale. We can try to wrap our minds around it. We can try to seek a sign. But the only way we can even begin to understand it is when we hear the love of God preached. And maybe in some small way we can begin to grasp the graciousness and majesty of our Creator. Again, Paul says, this may be, seem like foolishness to some people. But in the foolishness of God, there is power. And in the supposed weakness of God, there is strength. That power of God is stronger than the world. And that strength of God supersedes the mighty. And to such a great extent, God wanted to demonstrate His glory so clearly that He has allowed men to share His gospel around the world. Men from the pulpit, women in their homes, and to their children, to the next generation, passed on and on and on the preaching and demonstration of the power of God and the gospel of Christ. It may not 
make any sense to other people sometimes. But that doesn't matter. We're not called to try to convert those who refuse to understand the gospel of Christ. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, I pray that the word of God would have free course. I pray that it would flow down generation through generation, person by person, nation by nation. I pray that it would infect the world with its glorious message. He says free course. I pray that it would have free course. He said, I also pray that we would be delivered from wicked and unreasonable men. Men like the Jews who said, we're not going to believe it unless we get a sign. We're not going to believe it unless we see some physical evidence that you are the Son of God. And even if you do provide evidence, we're still not going to believe it. He says that doesn't matter. We're to look for those who, try, who are willing to place their faith in the work of Jesus Christ in the, in the inexplicable and ununderstandable love of Jesus. That's glorious this morning. Because it doesn't matter how science changes. It doesn't matter how knowledge evolves. It doesn't matter what the world may say. The love of Christ still stands this morning. Thank you for your time.